session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwin. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. We're doing the show on Instagram Live, so no calls. We can call in on Wednesday's show. Our studio number is 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. So let's get into the books of the week. The book for this week, which I'll talk about uh, next Monday's show, is called Consolations, The Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words by David White. And um, this book was recommended to me by a few friends. I don't know much about it uh, other than the author David White. He is a poet, and so he looks at some words that we use, but goes a little deeper looking at the meaning of them, um, which sounds pretty interesting to me. I kind of just took a glimpse inside the book, and it does look quite fascinating. Um, So again, that's Consolations, the Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words by David White. The book of the week for this week uh, is, that of last week that I'll talk about tonight, is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color Blindness. And uh, this was a book I'd read, I think, four years ago, five years ago, but it wasn't a book of the week. And I wanted to read it again for myself, but also to further the discussion on this topic related to race, racism in the United States and what we have to do, or even first what the problem is and what's going on. And this book is really heartbreaking in a way. Of course, we have to face the heartbreaking reality of what's going on in our world. Um, But it is very sad to see what Michelle Alexander discusses in this book, which is about mass incarceration in the United States, which you might have heard about. We are the country with the most prisoners or most people in jail, something around 2 million people or even more than that. Uh, But on top of that, it's not just some snapshot of America, so to speak. It's very much overpopulated with black and brown people. And so this book is suggesting and arguing and puts a very convincing argument with the, the facts and the data that she presents that in the United States, we have a prison system that is biased based on race, and that is in some way intentional. Now, by intentional, it doesn't mean that every police officer, every police chief, every district attorney is themselves inherently racist or is acting intentionally in a racist way. But when we talk about systemic racism, we're saying that at its core, the way that things are set up makes it so that the results end up racist, so that even if you change the police chief or change the police officers, unfortunately, the very powerful system will end up with the same results. And so it's hard to realize that this could be our reality, but I hope that you will read this book because that same feeling I'm having that says I don't want to accept that the reality could be 
that due to racism, we are putting some people behind bars. We're essentially taking away their freedom and even afterwards having a negative impact on their lives, that it might be based on race. Uh, it's hard for us to accept that. We don't like for things to seem unfair or to be unjust. And so either when we face injustice, we fight it, meaning we try to change it, or unfortunately, the easier path and often the one we take is to somehow justify it away. Maybe there isn't actually uh, this race issue. People that go to jail, they've done something wrong. So there isn't racism in the system. It's very much about if you do something wrong, you go to jail. If you don't, you don't go to jail. So we don't like to live in a world that's not just, that is unfair. It's a lot easier and more convenient for us to just say, you know what, if that's how things are going, if there are more black and brown people in jail, it's because they're doing more wrong things and that's it. And that's not about anything unfair or unjust. But when you recognize the facts that are presented in this book, a very important one is, so when we look at this increase um, in, in prison population we have in the United States, something like uh, it was around, I forgot, in the 1970s, a few hundred thousand, or I forgot exactly how many there was. But this huge increase seems very likely to be the result of the quote-unquote war on drugs that started in the Reagan administration, which really appears not to be about the crime rate or trying to reduce drugs, but as she posits in the book, very much related to race. And of course, you couldn't explicitly say we want to affect negatively a certain aspect of our population based on race that had changed ever since um, slavery and then Jim Crow. Once we had the civil rights movement, you couldn't explicitly talk about race, but using crime in this way or using people who are having drug issues or use, selling drugs or using drugs became a proxy, a way of addressing this issue of being racist in policy without explicitly using that word race, which is what, what is explained in the book. So when we look at drug use, if we say that so many more people are in jail who are African-American or who are black and brown than white people, that would suggest that there's more uh, drug crime or drug use amongst the African-American community. But that's not the case. Research shows that we have essentially equal drug use and drug-related crimes with black and white people. So there isn't this um, inherent racism or inherent race difference that would account for more people going to jail for race, uh, for drug-related crimes. That was something that really jumped out to me. I remember the first time I read the book and wanted to look at it in more detail this time, that if you have the same amount of something happening in a population, but then you have several times more people in jail of a certain race when they are already a minority, as far as even the amount of people we have, clearly something doesn't add up. So, you know, it's not a, a similar crime, of course, but if we talk about speeding, everyone goes a little bit over the speed limit sometimes. And if you found that, let's say, a certain Iranians were getting pulled over 10 times more than everyone else, but everyone is speeding, well, then you would feel like this is very unfair. And then if we were then given this label of being criminals because we have been speeding, but you know other people are doing it at an equal rate, that would feel very unfair. And in some ways, that's essentially what is happening here. We have people using drugs all over the country, people selling drugs all over the country from different races and different backgrounds. 
but we somehow end up with the result that some races make up much more a disproportionate amount of that population and clearly that's not okay that's not fair and that's not just so when you hear people talk about the system being racist and initially your reaction might be it can't be if we're talking about crime how could that be racist you either break the law or you don't but what we're seeing is that it's not that everyone that breaks the law gets arrested there's definitely a bias where we see that there's biased numbers as far as the proportion of people who are in jail. But taking a step back, even the title of the book, The New Jim Crow. So after slavery, which was essentially abolished, 1865 was the end of the Civil War. Um, but I think Juneteenth, by the last slave being emancipated, was a little bit after that, but I forget the year. But we're talking about the mid to late 1860s. It wasn't as if after slavery, everything was easy for the freed slaves. I just, you can imagine, we still have racism now. We definitely saw um, racism back then. And so essentially what started to develop was what was called these Jim Crow laws, which was taken from the name of a minstrel show. And they were these laws that were sometimes very clearly racist, but sometimes they were not as clearly said to be racist. For example, things like having a poll tax or a literacy test to vote. Um, and this could be not asked of everyone, so sometimes they wouldn't tell everyone to take these tests or to pay a poll tax. But this is a way to essentially allow uh, in the South for some people uh, to not let African Americans vote who are now freedly, uh, recently freed slaves, for example. So his whole system uh, of essentially laws and customs that was going on in the South especially, that was called the Jim Crow laws or the Jim Crow. It wasn't something official as some kind of doctrine, as in you can look up Jim Crow laws in the U.S. government, but these were things that were going on. With the, um, it also included things like segregation. So we had white and black schools, white and black drinking fountains even, um, and this began to change with the civil rights movement, which challenged those Jim Crow laws and essentially was trying to bring about equality, civil rights for all and equal rights for all people, black and white. And so there was great progress and great gains that were made legally, the Civil Rights Act and other legislation that was passed. Not only were laws passed, but we saw that people's hearts were changing, people's hearts and minds were becoming more aware of the racism and not accepting that that racism is okay in the country. And so we saw a movement towards more equal rights and equal rights for uh, African Americans in this country. And it was wonderful. So that was the Jim Crow. And essentially with that civil rights movement and the, the Civil Rights Act being passed and the other legislation, it was essentially assumed, well, that's the end of Jim Crow. There's, there's no more, there's equality. And so with this book, it's titled The New Jim Crow. It's essentially saying that this form of mass incarceration and the whole system that surrounds it is a new form of creating the race dynamic that is beneficial and preferential to whites, but it changes its form. So as she puts it, when we look at slavery, well, slavery ended, it seems like we have equality now, but then we had the Jim Crow era. So that same white supremacy and same racism it transformed its form, but it was still the same basic thing. And when Jim Crow ended around the civil rights, she's saying that 
to replace that, what came in was this new Jim Crow, mass incarceration, which was sparked by the war on drugs, which disproportionately put black and brown people in jail in a new guise we had racism. It wasn't slavery anymore. It was much different. And she gets into how that, of course, is different. We can't say we still live in the age of slavery or it's the same thing. But there's some ways that make it even harder to deal with this issue of mass incarceration, uh, which I will address. So, as I mentioned, when we look at drug use, this is very important in drug-related crimes, we see equal rates among whites and blacks. So this makes it, again, hard for us to understand why there are more black and brown people in jail for drug-related issues. Not only that, with the war on drugs, we saw this acceleration of things like minimum sentences that were mandatory minimum sentences, meaning a judge did not have discretion to say, you know what, in this case, it's not really fair to put this person in prison for having, let's say, a small amount of marijuana for five years, but they had no discretion to, to make that decision. So we saw some shifts in the way that they uh, were treating drugs. And, and I might, depending on the time, talk about this issue itself, that drug abuse or using drugs can be looked at more as a mental illness or an illness of society rather than something to be punished. We're punishing someone for some kind of illness or something that they're dealing with where really a lot of times it's not that it's easy for them to stop or they have the resources to stop or the support they need, but we're punishing people and people are in jail um, for something that actually they need help for, not to be punished for. And we all pay the price when we punish these people in this way. So we have people using at equal rates. And, and as she talks about in the book, you can imagine they could have done drug raids at any fraternity in the United States. She didn't say it quite in that way, but there was something along those lines. And arrest you know, people that are doing drugs in those fraternities. And uh, as she puts it, I think 10% of people each year violate drug laws in some way, and many people throughout their life will. Or maybe it was 10% people, 10% throughout life. Nonetheless, it's not something rare. I doubt that could be true. It must be 10% each year. Um, taking some kind of drug that is illegal. Marijuana has recently become illegal in most most has become legal in most states, but before that was illegal too. So when you include that, many of you listening to me right now can probably look at your life and recognize I have broken some drug law in the United States. I have violated some law. And someone has done something that you have done and their life has effectively been ruined. Their freedom might have been taken away for years um, and other uh, consequences of being labeled a criminal or labeled a felon will affect their life even if they are to come out of jail. So this in and of itself should feel very unfair. Like I said before, if you found out that for speeding the same amount that you've um, sped on the freeway or on the roads before, someone was arrested and their life was ruined, you would think that that's very unfair. Usually we'll try to do some mental gymnastics to try to justify why that that might be true. But in this book, The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander does a great job bringing up different arguments that come up and dismantling those arguments. For example, well, maybe more uh, black people are in jail for drug-related crimes because there are more violent crimes going on with drugs with them but the statistics don't bear that out. The statistics don't show that there's more violent crime going on when it comes to drugs in the African-American community or population, but yet we see more arrests 
in that uh, population as well. So again, it's a, a strange thing to see, something that is happening in all walks of life, but we then target only certain groups of people. Because if you do a raid in any home, if you go to some suburban home, you might find some drugs there. If you go to some Hollywood party, you almost definitely are going to find a lot of illicit, illegal drugs. So they could have been doing a war on drugs that focused on rich white people who were doing drugs at parties, but that was not how things were played out. And systematically, they were not played out for many reasons. They were attacking, essentially, people in the inner cities. And to even say a war on uh, drugs is interesting thing to look at. We are trying to... Um, wage war on our own people. Yes, drugs can be very harmful. Drugs can be very bad. I think, unfortunately, this reflects some of the American mindset that when something is bad or you don't like it, you try to kill it. You try to wage war against it rather than looking at what else can be done to, to help this issue. So she outlines very clearly how from just even searching or looking for who has drugs or is using drugs all the way to sentencing and what happens afterwards. Every step of the way, you can see racial influences or racism at every step of the way, that blacks are more likely to get things like stopped and frisked or searched when they're driving, pulled over for the very reason of searching to see if they have drugs on them, and on and on till the end, you see how there's racism at every point of the system, which unfortunately leads to this consequence of what she calls an undercast of people who are labeled felons, la labeled criminals, and are essentially not considered uh, parts of society anymore, or labeled as second class or even worse citizens. A and I'll get into some of that after the break, because I'm looking at the time we're at a commercial break. Um, but I really recommend and hope that anyone, uh, especially in the United States, but around the world, it's a great book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. It'll give you a much better understanding of the prison system in the United States, especially when it comes to drug-related crime. So I'll continue talking about the book after the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. So as I was talking about in the first segment, again, highly recommend the book. I hope if you haven't read it, you will, uh, because... Uh, if you want to be educated about race and racism in America, you have to really look at what the experts are telling us or read more about what's going on. I know a lot of people might be passionate about racism and about Black Lives Matter and wants to want to help, but feeling about it is very important, but we have to also educate ourselves in a sense, um, prepare ourselves to know the issues better to then ask uh, for what we need or what we need to change. But if we're not informed, it's harder for us to make a positive impact. But so as I was talking about, the book outlines how we see equal rates of drug use and abuse and drug crimes between blacks and whites, but heavily um, we see uh, the, the proportion of blacks who are in jail for drug-related crimes is much more than would be if we just look at by chance or if we look at what the population would reflect or what we would expect based on the population. So this is, is not okay. And so the war on drugs, which uh, was declared in the Reagan administration in the 80s, crime was actually going down at that time, or it wasn't there was some huge uptick in crime. 
um, that needed this war to be waged. And, and of course, the U.S. is known for waging wars that we probably don't need to wage. And this was definitely one of them. And unfortunately, rather than being on some outside enemy, the enemy became American citizens who in some ways were no longer being counted as citizens with what happened. So um, even the way she talks about the militarization of the police when we look at the war on drugs, now we've seen it a lot. And even with the protests, you see police in what looks like more military gear than what we might think of as a police gear. But um, this was also, this happened in part because of the war on drugs, where the police departments were getting beefed up essentially in how they can respond by doing raids, by doing these no-knock warrants, which maybe you've heard about from Brianna Taylor, who was killed from a no-knock warrant, but she talked about in this book, which was written, of course, before that tragic event. Um, and we see that the, the police modified its response, that it became essentially trying to make raids, trying to catch people. There were financial incentives. It became this whole machine, unfortunately, and that's why it'll be so hard to dismantle and to change that because there's money involved, there is a whole system involved. If we even acknowledge that this is going on, it would mean that we'd have to acknowledge the crime that is being committed by the government itself, trying to label people as criminals. It's going to be very hard, but it doesn't mean because it's hard we, not, we should not do anything about it. Uh, we have to understand what's going on and do something about it. So, um, again, in every step of the way, we see racism from um, pre-trial and finding people to um, being um, charged with different crimes to the way they're sentenced. You probably are aware that things like there's a huge difference. It used to be 50 to 1 to 100 to 1 um, for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine in the United States, that if you were prosecuted or were caught with crack cocaine, you would be given a, a, a sentence sometimes 50 times more than if you had that same amount uh, of powder cocaine, which is really uh, ridiculous. But this was because there was this whole um, media explosion about crack and crack babies and crack whores and this whole thing that was be being portrayed in the media that crack was the biggest ill in America and we had to get rid of it. And so by punishing it more severely somehow, that would solve the issue, but of course it did not. It just ruined more lives of people who actually needed help more than they needed to be um, uh, punished or hurt in that way. And so another thing that's important to mention when it comes to this undercast that she talks about, individuals who are, who, who are felons, essentially, or who are labeled felons because they have committed even a, a nonviolent crime that might have been related to drugs is it can affect the rest of their lives. So let's say they serve their time, which is probably too much or unfair when we think about how um, we're one of the only countries that so severely punishes drug use the, the way that we do. But someone comes out of jail, you might think, okay, well, that's it. They're, they've served their time and now their life is okay. So we can't consider them part of this undercast or uh, second-class citizens. But in the United States, it's so sad uh, when you look at people who are out of jail trying to make it back in their lives, a few things happen. One is you oftentimes are no longer eligible for uh, government benefits, things like food stamps. If you want to live in government housing, you might not be able to apply. Um, when you apply for a job, there's this thing called the box, and there's some people, a movement called ban the box. So if you've been convicted of a felony, very often you have to check a box that says, it'll say, have you been convicted of a felony? I think sometimes it's in a 
certain amount of time or in your lifetime. And once you check yes, a lot of times some businesses won't even look at you. Sometimes if you want to get licensed for a certain type of um, work, for example, even as a psychologist, we they have a box that we'd have to, to check. Once you do that, lots of times you won't even be eligible to, to get that license or to get that job. So it's much harder to get a job, one, because of just people don't want to hire someone who has a felony um, because of that box. And then also if you try to get a license of some kind, very often you'll be denied even if you are uh, your crime was un unrelated to what you'd be doing. So you have all these different things that make it harder for you to then legally take care of yourself. Sometimes you lose your driver's license as well. So now if you want to get a job that is far away, you might have to take public transportation or find some other way, which can make it difficult to then uh, to get your job. Then there's probation and parole, which is its own system of control and system uh, of making money actually in a lot of ways for companies that are involved with that. And we see this whole system that is very much geared towards making it very, very difficult, if not close to impossible, to integrate yourself back into society if you're someone who has been released from prison. So you've served your time and now you have a very hard time trying to live a good, decent life. And unfortunately, all of these things will make it more likely that someone might go back to doing illegal activities. If it's hard to get government assistance, hard to find a job legally, hard to get housing, all of these different things are going on. We can understand that it's unfortunately going to push people more towards um, a life of crime or doing something illegal. And then she mentions this in the book. I'm not saying that people don't have free will, that because you live in a certain area of a city, you have to become um, a criminal, quote unquote, actually, I don't even like using it in that way, but to commit these, what are considered drug crimes, let's say, it's not that you have no choice, but we have to look at a system as a whole. What are we doing? What are we creating as a society? When we have uh, people who are living in poverty and the ways that we do, and there's lack of resources, well, of course, we know that that's going to have certain effects and a certain impact. Um, and when we then punish these people for doing something that someone else is doing in the suburbs, it's very unfair. But this is where it gets complicated because, see, then you say, well, they committed a crime, so it's their own fault if they are facing consequences. You know, they shouldn't have done the crime if they don't want to do the time. And in, in this case, the time might be the rest of their lives, whether they're in jail the rest of their lives or the consequences of when they come out of jail. But again, we're looking at things with drug-related crimes that often are done by people that we just consider, oh, it's kids experimenting or having fun, or they may be you know, doing this here and there, but it's not a big deal. There's people in jail for having marijuana, which is now legal. It's really kind of crazy when you walk around Los Angeles now and there's big stores that look like an Apple store selling marijuana, but then you have people who are in jail for the rest of their life for having some amount of that drug. Something feels very wrong about that, very unfair. And unfortunately, that's that's the reality that we're living in. We have to look at that reality and recognize that we have to accept it as a reality now, but that we want to change it and can't accept that as being something fair. Um, so the way people are treated after they're even released from jail, as she puts it, makes them feel like a second class citizen. And oftentimes they lose their right to vote either indefinitely or for a certain amount of time. So there's so many ways that we're telling people that have been in jail that you are no longer considered part of us. And that's actually 
something we feel very strongly when people talk about you hear politicians for example this us and them or when you talk about criminals it's very much a them you know it's like we have to protect ourselves from them and and when you look at drug related crimes you recognize that when people are being arrested for something that is very common for other people to do this quote unquote them that we have in mind is very much a fiction and an imagination that people are so different than us if they've committed some kind of drug related crime and to then label them as a felon or a criminal and no good and if they lose their rights that's fine who cares uh, that's unfair and so we hear a lot of rhetoric from politicians because they want to show us they're not soft on crime that they're hard on crime they will show off um, about how hard they are on crime and so we've seen even she points out that uh, democratic presidents who you might think might be softer on crime bill clinton he had some um, you know, people were concerned that he'd be soft on crime. And even he one time left like a debate or left something early to go see the execution of someone who might have been mentally challenged. Even it's not clear he was aware of his execution to the point that when he was having his final meal, I think he asked if he could have his dessert the next day. So clearly he didn't even realize they were going to kill him, but he wanted to show that he was hard on crime. So he went back um, to Arkansas to see the execution personally. Uh, and even Obama, who did not necessarily do a lot to make the drug enforcement or the laws and the um, prison sentences for people who commit drug crimes much better or much less, or a lot more could have been done. So unfortunately, we, we still live in this system where it's seen as uh, a good thing to punish people. And, and punishment as a as a concept doesn't work or get the the job done the way that we think it does. Whether we're talking about with your kids, if you want to punish them to stop doing something bad, it doesn't work. All it does is make them afraid of you and they might try to avoid punishment to do the, the thing, but they're not going to um, uh, you know, become better people. And that's just in response to you. As soon as they can get away with it, they will still do that bad thing. So it doesn't really work if you're a parent. But as a society, when we focus on punishment, it doesn't work to help make things better. And probably in the last segment, I'll get into this in more detail about what does it mean when we have a quote-unquote justice system? What's the point of it? What are we trying trying to do when we have a system of quote-unquote justice? What is the end goal? And I'm not a legal expert to talk about that, but from a psychological perspective, I can share some thoughts and insights about that. But coming back to the book, um, it does paint this bleak picture of what we have going on in the United States now, that we have several million people in jail. And this is a, a lose-lose when we have so many people taken away from society. Of course, yes, we can't allow for crime. And she talks about that. It's not that she doesn't think violent crime or crime should be something ignored or a problem. But the way we're dealing with it is not the right way. So in the next segment, I'll touch some more about things that are brought up in the book. Um, but I'll also talk about some thoughts on punishment and justice and maybe some new ways of thinking about how we do those things. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fajalak. We will be right back. Welcome back. So talking about the book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. Again, a very powerful book, uh, eye-opening book. It was my second time reading it, but still... Um, it's, it's shocking to see the state of affairs when we look at uh, in the United States. And so 
Uh, the book does a great job, again, explaining the prison system, the history of how we got to where we are with the war on drugs and how from a legal perspective and every aspect of the legal system, we can see that there are more black people and black and brown people that are going to be included in the system and to be punished and to be created into this second class citizenship or undercaste. Uh, and she talks about how people will say, well, how can you say it's a racist system if there are white people in jail for drug crimes? True, which is true. And it's not that it's something blanket that only uh, affects the black community. But as she says, of course, if it was 100% of people in jail for drug crimes were black, you would it would be too racist for it to exist. No one would be able to accept that. But when you have the rates we have, which in some places even 90%, depending on certain age groups uh, of people behind bars, are, are black or black and brown, something is up. And, and that should be alarming. It doesn't have to be 100% for us to see racism. Racism would be anything that would be disproportionate. It would at least make us wonder what's going on. But in this last segment, I did want to also talk about just more systematic or systemic things that are going on, how we approach justice, punishment uh, as a society. So some people were bringing up uh, questions on Instagram Live during the commercial break, and, and I might start with some of those ideas uh, or thoughts that came up about poverty, for example. So here in the United States, we have, we're considered one of the richest countries in the world, but we have one of the highest wealth disparities uh, in the world when it comes to civilized countries, or the that was the wrong word, um, developed countries. And so um, when we look at this disparity of wealth that we have, it, it's very unfair, or very surprising to think we have this level of, of disparity of wealth, where there are so many people living in poverty in a country that is so wealthy, that we have the resources, but it's not reaching certain people. And so I was talking about this in the, in the commercial break with uh, people tuning in on Instagram Live. We take it as a given somehow that... Um, in the United States, depending on where you live, a child might get a very different education. There are schools in the inner cities that receive much less funding that are doing far worse than schools in another city uh, or other parts of that same city. And, and how can we be okay with that? That the kids that are born into these different cities and because of where they're born, they have different levels of education that they're getting, different resources that are being given to them. And unfortunately, this leads to different outcomes. We can see that when you're given different education from a young age and every stage of education, of course, it's going to affect how you are educated, what outcomes you can have, where you go to college, especially in the United States, which is so competitive when it comes to, to college admission. Of course, it's going to have this impact, but we accept these things. And so if you want to reduce crime, one of the best ways to do that is not to put more police out there and to punish people more harshly. If you want to reduce crime, the best way to do that is to reduce poverty. The less poverty you have, you're going to have less crime. The more poverty you have, you're going to have more crime. It just works out that way. If we take care of people in a better way, they're less likely to turn to crime. Again, it doesn't mean that any action someone takes if they're living in poverty is okay, or it means that if you are living in poverty, crime is definitely justified and you are uh, you know, completely off the hook as far as 
your own free will or your own determination of what to do. But when we look at a societal issue, we have to be aware that when we look at crime, rather than thinking of there's a them that are these criminals that are going to act in a criminal way and commit crimes, we should look at the fact that if we have poverty, people living in poverty are more likely to commit crimes. Yes, there might be a, a small segment of the population you might say sociopaths or psychopaths, maybe 1% of the population that might act in, in hurtful ways no matter what. But even that could be affected by things like um, abuse from a young age. So even those individuals, if we were to be aware of how we um, are taking care of our people, would be probably less likely to happen. But in general, when we look at people who we think, well, if they're in jail, they must have been a criminal, we have to look at the resources that are being given to these different people, the way their lives are, and that when we have extreme poverty, we're going to contribute to crime. So how sad that billions of dollars is being spent on um, fighting this quote-unquote war on drugs, which is not really effective, punishing people, rather than if it's being invested to actually take care of people better, and then there will be less crime and people will be safer. We're going to spend money to make sure some guy is not smoking marijuana in his own house in, in a bad neighborhood rather than investing money in the schools in that person's neighborhood to take care of them. And really, there's a victimless crime if he's using drugs himself, let's say, not that I'm condoning or encouraging that, but just the way we're allocating resources doesn't make sense. Why would we focus on trying to punish people who are... Um, you know, doing something like selling drugs or drugs are being used even. Selling drugs, you might say, is different, but still that's happening in all neighborhoods and being punished in a very unbalanced uh, way. Um, but why not in investing more money in helping these people or helping these cities, these individuals living in those cities? So to me, it's very sad that we declare this war on drugs, thinking that somehow, you know, what was the end goal? That we're somehow going to get rid of drugs, get rid of drug use? We've seen that throughout history, and we see that punishing is not a way to get rid of any behavior, but especially something like drug use. If we punish people, um, unfortunately, they're even more likely, as someone is saying in the Instagram chat, um, are more likely to do negative things rather than to do positive things. And that's something that I was kind of getting to when you look at what happens, uh, I mentioned in the last segment, when someone is in jail punished of course they're already going to be angry at society especially if it's for a drug crime that they know other people are committing but not getting punished for then you come out and you can't get public assistance you can't get um you know you can't vote it's harder for you to get a job what do we think is the likelihood that that person is not going to be even more angry with society and want to take it out on society in some way or the likelihood that that person would want to follow all the laws and really respect a society that has been nothing but mean to him or her. Really, we're, trying, we're creating a, a scenario that's much more likely to lead to someone wanting to hurt society again. This is that lose-lose that we have. If you punish someone harshly and unfairly, then of course they're going to want to lash out back at you. Why would they want to be kind and good to you when you've been only bad to them? So when we focus on punishing as the main goal in some ways we don't get a result we just might feel good in some ways for other people even if you're not part of the quote-unquote system you might think well it's good we're punishing crime harshly um, but 
we we have to to be aware that if we're punishing as our main source of trying to make things better, what's the point? And so that's why when we talk about having a quote-unquote justice system in the United States, I oftentimes think it's better to think of it as a punishment system. We're not thinking about how to make things just and how to make things better. We're just looking at how can we punish people if they did something bad. That seems to be the end goal, which is a very basic level of looking at how we're dealing with behaviors, dealing with the society. Same thing with your kids. If you think my only job is to spank them when they do something bad, you're missing the bigger picture, which is I'm trying to help them grow and develop to a healthy human being, make them feel better about themselves, make them love doing the right things, make them aware of what things are not good and harmful to them and harmful to others, but not that I'm just supposed to punish them. But some parents even function in this way. They think their job is to look for bad behavior and to just spank or yell or do whatever it is to punish their child in that moment. But this doesn't work and it doesn't help that individual and it doesn't also help that relationship. So if you as a parent punish your kids and that's the main way you think you're going to help them, you're not really going to help them grow into a good person and also you're just going to damage your relationship with them as well. And as a society, we're doing the same thing. If we are just looking to punish people for being bad, we're missing understanding how we can actually help them. Help them not because when we say they did this wrong thing, it's okay or it doesn't matter, but realizing that when we hurt them more, we're only adding to the pain and we're not going to help them grow or overcome whatever it is that they did. Many individuals go to jail and they do contribute because of their own hard work uh, and determination. I actually have had the pleasure of going to the Twin Towers Jail in, in Los Angeles, and I made a friendship with a few of the guys there um, that, that are uh, you know, at currently being uh, in jail there, and they um, have written a book, two of them, Craig and Adrian, and they uh, I just saw something on Instagram that they're trying to publish the book or they have published the book and it might be sold. And so that's incredible. I'm very inspired by them that they, in in that type of circumstance where you might think they can give up or not want to do something, they're trying to contribute to society. And it's something related to mental health about the work they're doing in the jails, which is amazing. Um, but that's harder to do when you are obviously in that situation. And why don't we try to make things better for individuals who have been, uh, even if they have done this quote-unquote wrong thing that we think about, but this way that we label them as a criminal and as a felon, essentially we are thinking of them in this way that they are bad, that they are unsalvageable, that all we have to do is punish them and remove them from society. There might be some individuals, again, maybe 1% or not even that, who really it would be very hard. And even with them, I would hope we don't give up on them. But the majority of people who go to jail, especially in the United States, where the majority of people go to jail for drug-related offenses that are very often nonviolent, these are not bad people or criminals that are um, going to just hurt people. We can actually do a lot more to help them. And I hope that, you know, we've heard terms like defund the police, which has come out in the wake of the, the George Floyd murder and people talking about these things. And I know it's very extreme. And when you have a slogan, usually it's going to be, try to be to the point, but it'll miss a lot of the nuance of whatever we're talking about. And so when people hear defund the police, they think people mean starting tomorrow, no more police officers anywhere, anyone does whatever they want. But that's not 
what that means and I'm not even going to say specifically that's what I'm talking about. But we want to reframe the police or reframe our justice system and our punishment system and the way people um, are taken, you know, taken care of or not taken care of and being hurt. When people do things that are not helpful or hurtful in some way, yes, we um, don't say that that's okay. Just like with your kids, it's not that we say you overlook anything bad that they do. But we want to be aware of the way we respond is not just some knee-jerk reaction to feel like justice means if you hurt people, we hurt you as bad as you hurt those people. Yes, there can and should be consequences, but shouldn't we be thinking as a society, how can we create the best result? How do we make it so that when someone comes out of jail, for their benefit and the benefit of society at large, let's make something in a way where they're more likely to contribute positively. But what we see in the United States is people are punished after they leave jail, they're labeled in a certain way. It's one of those ultimate us-thems, and as she talks about in the book, uh, us and them that really everyone feels they can get behind in some ways. White or black, poor, rich, Republican, Democrat, we can all look at criminals, so to speak, and think of them as some them, and we are morally better than them, and so we don't need to take care of them or do anything about them. And that's also what she talks about in the book, unfortunately, when people are in jail, first of all, they're removed, so we don't see them, and that way they're invisible, so we don't uh, see that they're suffering or see that maybe something unfair is going on. And then when they come out, they have a very little voice. And on top of that, people tend not to want to associate or even help people that are considered, quote-unquote, a felon, the way it's labeled, or a criminal. So they don't get a lot of attention or people don't see them. And so something I tried to do on this show is to help us recognize we are at times ignoring we're overlooking the rights of certain groups of people or certain people experiencing certain things. And we want to be mindful and aware of what we're doing and when we do that, that maybe there is some other way of looking at things. Maybe those thems that you're thinking of, of people who are in jail, are not so different or so much of a them. There are people that if you understood their life circumstances, you might see in another way. And even if they have done something wrong, we've all done something wrong or many things wrong in our life, let's think about how we want to deal with that. Do we want to just punish them and feel good about it? If we punish them, we're going to feel that justice has been served? Yes, I'm not saying that we never have punishment. Of course, we at times need to remove people or have consequences for things that happen. But if we look at the bigger picture, we see that the way we think about quote-unquote criminals affects the ways or the things that we're okay with. And if you read this book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, I hope you will walk away with it recognizing that the system is not fair. We want it to be fair because that would feel a lot better, but it's not. And that we look at people who have committed crimes, so to speak, or we think of a felon, you might have something that comes to your mind. Of course, because of the media, when you think of felon, unfortunately, most people think of someone black, even they've done research that when you close your eyes and imagine a drug user, or a drug dealer, most people will think of that because of the media's presentation. As I mentioned, blacks and whites are equal numbers when it comes to using drugs or drug crimes. So that's clearly something that's been created by the media. But this them that we've created, they are all of us. It's all uh, people like us who deserve to be taken care of. And again, as a society, we deserve to have people reintegrated into society. First of all, not removed as much as they are in the United States and not punished, but also reintegrated in a way that we don't look at them as second-class citizens. We allow them to contribute 
for them and for the benefit of everyone else. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. I was joined by Farhuda here in the studio tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.